One of the features of Christmas, I think, is that we get lots of stuff we don't need. Many of us might be quite disciplined for the rest of the year, but at Christmas we go a little bit crazy. We buy way more food than we need, and we eat more of it than we need, just because it's there. We buy presents for people who already have everything, and we get presents that we know we're never really going to use. Christmas is a time of excess. And so in the middle of all the excess, we're going to think this morning about some bare bones truth from Scripture. We're going to look together at a passage which shows us the basics of our mission. So turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I'm not sure where the page number is today. We're going to pick up at the very last verse of chapter 12. So just where we left off last week, and we'll continue through to the end of chapter 13 this morning. And this passage we're going to look at shows us four simple truths. We find the first of these in chapter 12, verse 25, through to chapter 13, verse 3. Verse 25 says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission... They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. These verses show us Barnabas and Saul finishing one mission and starting another. The mission they finished is mentioned in verse 25. They took financial help from the new church in Antioch all the way down to the mother church in Jerusalem about 300 miles away. Now we're told they have delivered that gift safely and they return to Antioch. And they bring with them a young believer from Jerusalem called John Mark. And from what we've been told so far, the church in Antioch seems to be a healthy church in every way. Chapter 11 told us Barnabas and Saul spent a year teaching the church And that solid grounding in the truth helped the believers see their responsibility to their brothers and sisters down in Jerusalem. They sent them a gift. Now the beginning of chapter 13 tells us the Antioch church is well gifted with prophets and teachers. Now it's not clear here if we were to think of all the men in verse 1 as both prophets and teachers. Or if some of them were prophets and some of them were teachers. In fact, we're not told what the difference is between a prophet and a teacher. As far as I can see in the New Testament, those called teachers are gifted in explaining the truth. And those called prophets 
are particularly gifted in speaking to specific people in specific situations. So, for example, back in chapter 11, we were told about a prophet called Agabus. He predicted a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. Now, clearly, what Agabus did was more than just teaching. But a true prophet will never say anything that contradicts God's word. And it seems that many prophets in the New Testament were also teachers. They explained the word, and then they were able to apply it in pretty specific ways, as the Holy Spirit directed them. And the main point here is that the church in Antioch has plenty of men with these gifts. And as a church, they're also full of devotion to God. Verse 2 describes them worshipping the Lord and fasting. We're not told exactly what form that took. Was it what we would call a church service? Well, it certainly does seem that the whole church body was together. And somehow probably through one of the prophet teachers, the Holy Spirit makes it clear to the church body that they're not to hoard all these resources for themselves. They're to set apart Barnabas and Saul and send them off. God wants to use them somewhere else. What we're being shown here is that the worshiping church will be a missional church. The church that is truly being taught God's word and is truly responding to his word with worship and devotion, that church will take up the mission Jesus gave the church to go out and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Genuine worship will produce obedience. Often when we speak about worship today, What we mean is, I was singing in church and I felt great. I had a great worship experience. But think about the pattern that we've seen here in Antioch. Chapter 11 told us Barnabas and Saul taught the church for a year. Now there are other teachers too. And in response to all this teaching, the people get both excited and serious about God. We're told they're worshipping and fasting. That means they're going without food for a period of time so they can be more devoted to prayer. And out of all that comes obedience to God. They do what God tells them. Verse 3 says, They placed their hands on Barnabas and Saul. That's a sign this is a church decision. And as Barnabas and Saul go, they're going with the blessing and support of the church. You'll notice that Barnabas and Saul don't present this idea themselves to the church. It was the church body who discerned God was calling them to do this. It's very easy for well-equipped churches to get a bit self-satisfied and a bit inward-looking. It's easy for churches who are strong on teaching and worship to think the whole reason for their existence is teaching and worship. But if we are truly paying attention to the teaching 
and truly worshipping, then we're going to hear God calling us to look outwards, to call others to come and worship him. So then, how do we go about that? Verses 4 to 12 put it very simply for us. The mission is to make the word of God known. Look at verse 4. The two of them, that's Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Barnabas and Saul take John Mark along with them as a kind of apprentice missionary. They sail across to Cyprus, that's where Barnabas comes from. And at first glance, this looks like a confrontation between Elymas the sorcerer and Saul. But I think the emphasis here is on the word of God. Verse 5 tells us when they arrived on Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. We've seen in recent weeks that the word of God is for the Gentiles too. But that doesn't mean the Jews are to be forgotten about. In fact, the New Testament pattern is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And when these first missionaries go to a new area, they always start at the synagogue. These first Christians all have Jewish backgrounds. And they go to their own people first. And what the missionaries do is proclaim the word of God. They don't start a political party and try to get into government. They don't spend their energy trying to change the pagan laws of the land. I'm not saying those things are wrong. But when the church in Acts looks outwards and moves outwards, it doesn't do that stuff. It proclaims the word of God. And that's what prompts the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, to send for them. A proconsul was the title for a Roman magistrate in charge of a province. So Sergius Paulus is the head man on Cyprus. 
Barnabas and Saul are proclaiming the word of God. And verse 7 says, this man sends for them because he wanted to hear the word of God. As Christians, it's easy for us to get confused about what we are supposed to be doing. We are not called to Christianize the country. We are called to proclaim the word of God to the country. And we don't need to make that into something complicated. We don't need to try and be subtle or hide our intentions. If we are clear and open about what we're trying to do, then those who want to hear will listen. But of course, the word will produce other kinds of reaction too. We're told that Barnabas and Saul's proclamation of the word makes Elymas the sorcerer jealous. This man is Jewish. He's called Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. And before our minds start racing around about what that might mean, the explanation is that Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. So this man was called after the Old Testament character Joshua, not after the Jesus that we know. Elymas or Bar-Jesus seems to have been a sort of private court wizard for Sergius Paulus. And when he sees Sergius becoming interested in the word of God, he realizes his cushy position might be under threat. And verse 8 says, he opposed Barnabas and Saul and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. And then just to keep us all concentrating, we're told that Saul is also called Paul. Saul was his Jewish name, Paul is his Roman name. And now that he's become a missionary to the Gentiles, he begins to go by his Roman name. And he'll be known as Paul from now on. Paul stands up and opposes Elymas to his face. And through God's power, the sorcerer becomes temporarily blind. And verse 12 says, When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. We might have expected the text to say, he believed for he was amazed at what had happened. But that's not what it says. It says he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. What it brings the proconsul to faith is not the miracle, but the word. And so here's the point for us to see in all of this. It was the word of God Sergius was interested in. It was the word of God that aroused opposition from Elymas. And although God does do a miracle through Paul, it's ultimately the word of God that amazes Sergius and brings him to belief. God may do any number of things through you or me. That's up to him. But the mission he has given us is to make the word of God known. We must never get distracted from that. So then what exactly is the word of God we're to make known? It's easy to assume we all know what we're talking about with this. But assumptions can be dangerous. 
So let's follow the next section as it tells us what the word is. First, we're told where Paul and Barnabas go next, picking up in verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. We're told that John Mark leaves Barnabas and Paul in Perga. We're not told why here, but later we find out that he deserted them. So his return to Jerusalem wasn't something they were expecting. And Barnabas and Saul then go on to Pisidian Antioch. And just to complicate things, this is a different Antioch from the one they started out from. In fact, in the ancient world, there were 16 cities called Antioch. They were all named after a Greek ruler called Antiochus. Anyway, when they get to this Antioch, as is their habit, Paul and Barnabas go first to the synagogue. We know that Paul had been trained as a rabbi in the past, and his dress may have indicated that he's a rabbi. That may be why he and Barnabas are asked if one of them wants to speak to the congregation. Paul accepts the invitation, and what his sermon shows us is that the word the church is to make known is the good news of God's promise and its fulfillment. One of the main reasons men and women don't understand Jesus is because they don't understand the Old Testament. Jesus' birth and everything else about his life don't seem like good, big news unless you know the Old Testament. And here, as he speaks, Paul starts with the Old Testament. John Stott has summed up his first point as this. God's initiative of grace. Look at verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Paul says, God chose our fathers, meaning Abraham and his family. God made them prosper. And he eventually gave them the land of Canaan. God took the initiative. And he poured out grace on the people of Israel. Paul goes on to describe more of that history of God's grace. He includes King David and then the Savior, Jesus, the Savior God had promised. We'll pick up again down in verse 26. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. 
The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfill the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they find no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Paul has described God's initiative of grace, and now he says God's grace is undefeated by human evil. Acts has told us several times before that even the evil of Jesus' crucifixion was part of the fulfillment of God's promises. And Paul makes that point again here. Through the Old Testament prophets, God had promised one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. God had promised that the punishment falling on his chosen one would bring us peace. Through his wounds we would be healed. Those texts were read in the synagogues on the Sabbath. The Old Testament promised that God would send one who would not deserve punishment, but he would be punished. He would die as our substitute so we could escape punishment for our sin. Paul says Jesus is the substitute sent by God. And the proof of that came when God raised him from the dead. Verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Then to back up his point, Paul quotes some Old Testament promises originally about King David. And he shows those promises were ultimately pointing to the greater king, Jesus. And then he says, down in verse 38... Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Verse 39 says, the person who believes in who Jesus is and what he's done is justified. Another word for that is acquitted. Each one of us, the Bible says, has an eternal death sentence hanging over us because of our sin. But by trusting that Jesus' death was for us and was enough for us, we are acquitted. We're declared in the right, free of guilt. Keeping the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, could never justify anyone. Just as being religious and moral can never justify you today. If we think we can become acceptable to God through our own efforts, then we just don't understand the size of our debt. God is infinitely holy, He's infinitely worthy of honor. 
And which one of us can claim to have given him all the honor and love that we have? Each of us has a debt that's just too big for us to pay off. But through Jesus, each of us can receive forgiveness for our debt. He has paid it for all those who will trust in him. God has taken the initiative to show grace. Human evil has not defeated his grace. And Paul finishes here with a challenge. Rejecting God's grace leads to judgment. Verse 40. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Paul is quoting God's words through the prophet Habakkuk. Scoffers are people who show contempt. Listen to Prime Minister's Question Time on a Wednesday and you'll hear plenty of scoffing. But it's also possible to scoff quietly. To quietly reject something in our hearts without making a big noise about it. And long before Jesus came, God said through Habakkuk, if you're a scoffer, either a loud one or a quiet one, then even when I'm at work, even when someone tells you about my work, you won't believe it and you will perish. This is a challenge to get our hearts right before God. If we come to church with the heart of a scoffer, if we politely look down our nose at all this talk about our debt of sin and the blood of Christ that paid for our sin, if we scoff at that, then as Paul says in verse 40, we need to take care. Don't assume it's God's job to show me it's all true. No, it's my job and your job to humble our hearts before God. To put our scoffing aside and be ready to see the work God has done through Jesus. In Bethlehem, God humbled himself to become a man. Just an ordinary man, a carpenter. He came with the express purpose of dying for your salvation. And what he did on the cross is the greatest demonstration of God's grace. If we're going to receive that grace, we have to humble ourselves. We have to admit that we are guilty enough that we needed God the Son to die for us. Otherwise, if we won't humble ourselves, we will perish with the others who show contempt for God's grace. There will always be scoffers. That's the final truth we find in this passage. 
The word that's proclaimed will be both rejected and believed. That's illustrated for us in the aftermath of Paul's sermon. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. When Paul and Barnabas, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. In this context, God-fearers are religious people who don't want to hear about Jesus. Those people stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The word of God will always receive a mixed response. Some will believe it and some will reject it. And sooner or later, those who reject it won't hear it anymore. Because the one sharing the message will move on. The rest of Acts will show that Paul got expelled from most of the places he went to. Serving Jesus did not result in him being liked or even accepted a lot of the time. So how is it that we can read in verse 52 these words? And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How can we be filled with joy even when people don't like us? Well, here are three reasons. First, when we know that God has accepted us in Jesus, we can live with other people rejecting us. Second, we don't serve God so people will like us. We serve him because he has called us and we love him and we feel privileged to obey him, whatever the outcome. And third, we can be filled with joy as we embrace the truth of verse 48. Verse 48 tells us that ultimately... Men and women believe because in his deep and mysterious purposes, God has appointed them for eternal life. 
He has chosen them. So we do our very best to make God's word known. And then we rest in this truth. The salvation of men and women does not depend on our efforts. It depends on the sovereign plans of our God. So when our efforts are successful, we don't get full of pride. We rejoice in what God has done. And when our efforts seem to produce nothing, we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. We rejoice that whatever people think of us or do to us, the God who appointed us for eternal life allows us to be servants of King Jesus. That's how we can be filled with joy, even in the midst of rejection. We're going to remind ourselves how blessed we are as we sing, Oh, to see the dawn, and then treasure. Treasure.